Hi, this is episode number 63 of the Bricks and Mortar podcast. It's your property podcast. Got an interest in property, buying, selling, renting or investing? Then this week's episode is a real goodie. I tell you who we've got on the show this afternoon. We've got Kenny Martin. I had a chat with Kenny Martin. I've known Kenny for probably a couple of years now. He's an architect. He's fed up doing the drawings and what he's decided to do, he's decided to get into property development. And this ain't any old flipping a flat here, doing a semi up and selling it on. No, no, this is big stuff. This is buying land, getting planning permission and building the things from scratch. It's a wonderful story and I'm sure if you've got any interest at all in the development side of things, then not only is the interview that I did a must listen to, but also you'll hear on the interview that Kenny is teaching people how to understand the development game. I went on his course, he's running a two-day course, I went in the course probably about a month ago and you know from a solicitor's point of view spent 20 odd years in the trenches of resi convincing I did a lot of builder stuff back in the day and I thought I knew what I was doing but this was a real eye-opener this gets real down and dirty with the nitty-gritty of what you really need to know if you're wanting to get in to the development game you know for a lot of you out there buy to let is the taxes have become or made the buy-to-let side of things just not economic for you or your serviced accommodation maybe the fizz has gone out of the serviced accommodation maybe you're tired of flipping the old property and maybe what you want to do and think about is actually buying a plot of land and building on that and if you have got any interest in that at all then stay tuned for Kenny's interview and also stay tuned because he'll give you details as to how you can go on his course. But before we get into the interview, a little bit of an update as to what's happening on the home front. We've got the hire started. We're now just into, I think uh, Amy had Spanish there, said it went pretty well. So that's a good start for her. She's got uh, five to do. I think she's got maths, I think, on Thursday. So we'll see how we get on with that one. And then number two, she's just got the gig for the district hockey. So we're real stoked as far as that's concerned. She's been training really hard. And for all the efforts that she's put in, it's really, it really has paid dividends. And we're so pleased that she's managed to get the gig for the under 14 like it's an under-14 championship they play, an inter-district thing. So we're going off to, I think it's uh, being held at uh, the Scottish uh, Hockey Centre, which is based in Glasgow. So we'll go over there on the 20th of May and find out what that's all about. And then finally, I'm just off the back of doing the Highland Fling. Once we've done the interview, I'll tell you a little bit more about that. It was a 53-mile ultra, and I tell you what, I'm absolutely wrecked. Um, I can barely walk. Ended up doing it in about 13 hours, and I tell you, it was probably the second hardest thing that I've done. So I'll tell you a few stories about that at the back end of the show. But listen, let's get into Kenny's interview with myself. (laughs) 
So we'll just have a natter. Shall we? Another natter. Excellent. <laughs> Following the natter I've just had. <laughs> indeed, indeed. So we'll do an introduction. So I won't introduce you or anything like that. So we'll do an intro at the front and an outro at the back. So we've known one another, oh, well, since B&I, isn't it? That's when we sort yeah. of got together. So would that be three years ago? Maybe. Is that three years you've joined then? Yeah, I yeah. think so. Yeah. I'm, I'm six years, I'm sure, in right. this year. Yeah. So, yeah. And you're an architect to trade. To profession, yes. Profession to trade. <laughs> I'm going to be an architect. As well as being a joiner, I'm also an architect. Candlestick Um So what I, th- what I wanted to do, I know that you're doing the mentoring side and we'll come to the mentoring side um, but I was interested in the progressive journey, interested in the architectural side of things, and I guess my old man was an architect, oh, right. and um, he, he did the you know the the bank Clydesdale Bank uh-huh. at the corner. That was one of his, right. um, and he was forever coming home with models. Ah, loved the model, right? Okay. And but you don't do that these Six days, do Not away from the women. <laughs> No, <laughs> a model of his building. Model. Ah, right. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. No models. I think for us as architects, are, well, actually, the past. yeah, they're kind of a thing of the past. Um, there are still some practices who use them. Yeah, um, they're quite expensive. You know, proper architectural models are quite expensive. Yeah, um, and the. Um, fun, I just thought of a funny story where I broke one of these models maybe take that one later uh-huh. um, but the reality is with all the software we've got nowadays computer programs 3D programming yeah. it's very cost effective to get either you know proper 3D resolution images or 3D computer models built um, that can give clients fly-throughs and walk-throughs yeah. and much more uh, have much more impact than what a, a traditional model would have so nearly every um, career uh, has been affected by computers, um, and I would guess if you, if my old man was sitting here today uh, and had a chat with you about what you do, um, he was all pens and, dr- and dr- etc. Now I don't know whether or not there's still an aspect of that, but to me, it, it's all on computer. That's pretty much. Yeah, a lot of the a lot of the work that we do is still on the computer. Uh-huh. You'll still get some drawing or some architects' offices and see a drawing board. Yeah, um, I must admit we don't have them in our office. Um, I trained originally with you know pen and paper, broad drawing pens, and you know the old uh, you used to have a rubber and uh-huh. a, a, they call it a blade. Yeah, and you just you know scratch your mistakes. Out so how did you find the transition then? Because that's interests me. Because that's all about change and how you've had to adapt from an original setting of pens and papers, you had your drawing board, etc. And then suddenly, in order for you to do your job, you've got to do it by computer. Yeah. How tough it, was that? It, it kind of happened for us at the right time. Because right. I was going through university at the time when it happened. Um, and I remember being at university and there was a module called computing. And it was one of those ones where we thought, that'll never take on, you know, <laughs> no chance, never going to happen. Yeah. And I remember actually talking about models that, that one of my colleagues was very into the computer, so I said to him, tell you what, you do my computer module and I'll build your model for you, you know, like a physical model. Right. So that's what we did. So needless to say, both of us passed, um, but I knew very little about computers at the time. 
hope your university isn't listening to this. They'll be chapping on your door. I'm sure it was a very small part of the film. <laughs> uh, I can use it now, so it's fine. That's right. Um, but in the end, I, I remember I went to London for my first... My, as an architect, you do a couple of years out in professional practice. Yeah. Um, and I went to London and I worked for a company called Michael Wolfer Partners. Oops, sorry. Can you edit that out? Huh? It's no, the editing. That <laughs> okay, oh dear. So I went to a firm called Michael Wolfer Partners in London. Right. Um, and uh, sat there and it was pretty much there's a computer and uh, fire, fire in, get, get stuck into that. And pretty much within a week or so, you know, I had learned how to use. You know, the software at a kind of fairly basic level yep. that allowed us to do drawings and, and, and crack on. So my first year in professional practice was really the thing that introduced me to the computer. Yes. Um, and uh, I don't know if it still exists, it was a programme called MicroStation. Um, so within 12, 13 months, I pretty much learned more than enough to get myself through. Mm-hmm. Interesting, when we went back to university for, let me think, I think it was two years, never touched a computer again until I left. Wow, right. Um, so clearly, you know, offices were using computers and, and, and drawing packages and so And because you went down to London and maybe that was ahead of the game, did you come up and were, were people surprised that you were using computers or was that pretty much from a particular mm. time scale, everybody was using computers? I think everybody was yeah. kind of using them then. I think that was the... They may well have been around before. I genuinely don't know, but that was my first introduction to them. I know that a lot of my peers at college or university at the time were using computers and they'd get out as well. Mm-hmm. Some of those guys were in Glasgow. So it must have been you know, something that was becoming pretty prevalent in the marketplace at the time. Um, so you started, did you do an apprenticeship? Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, well, when, when, you're, when you're training or you get through your qualification to become an architect, You've got to do three years in university, which we did. Um, you've then got to do um, another year out, um, and I went down to, to London to do my year out. Um, you've got another two years again in professional practice, so that's us sitting at, what's that, six years. Mm. Um, and then, in theory, you've got to do another year working in practice again before you can sit your Part 3 examination, which is your professional qualification to become an architect. So you've got seven years. Minimum seven, yeah. And I presume that final qualification is, is pretty much a penalty kick, is it? Or have you heard stories of people struggling to get the professional exam? I've heard a few people who have, who have struggled. Um, is it a penalty kick? I would say that by the time you get through the seven years, you're, they're pretty much the ones that are left are the thick-skinned ones. Who are, who are going <laughs> the to ones that are still standing. By hook or by crook, they're going to pass that exam. Uh-huh. Um in the end up, I took eight years. I had had enough of studying and book work, and yeah. you know, I, I, when I when I I worked there in a professional practice in a, a company in Coatbridge, um, doing some interesting projects. So I did my seventh year in there, mm-hmm. and when it came time to sit or sit my part three, I thought, you know what, I've had enough of book work and studying. I'm quite happy. I'll I'll do it next year, um, which is which is what I did. So I actually did it over a course of eight years. Um, and kind of sailed through it because I think that extra year experience, you know, just put everything into place. Yeah. Contract law, construction, uh, dealing with clients, you know. Because as an architect, there's so many aspects. You've got the artistic side, you've got to dream up what the building looks like. 
you've then got the engineering side, you've got the maths side. I mean, it's hell of a complicated. It's very complicated. It's every day is different because mm-hmm. every day doesn't matter what you've done in the past. Every day always brings a new challenge with it, and that was one of the things that I, I liked. Yeah. Um, I think for me personally, one of my biggest values is about learning. You know, I love to learn. Mm. Um, I went through a phase where I stopped learning through the recession, you know, trying to keep the practice going, stopped investing in myself, stopped investing in my learning, and actually got professionally depressed. I got to the stage I thought, gosh, you know, what have I done in the last five years? Um, and it was only when I came out of it, you know, come out of that kind of, not not, not depressed, but professionally depressed, yes. you know, thinking. Yeah. Um, so when I, when I came out of that, I realised it was because I wasn't learning. It was because I never invested in myself. It was because I didn't go to the network meetings. It was because all of these things. Mm-hmm. And when I stopped learning, I just thought, gosh, actually, what have I done? So when did you start Block? When did Block kick off? Block Architects was started in 2004. Right. Um, not on a whim, but, but I was probably only, gosh, I think, 2004. When did Twin Towers come down? 2001. Because mm-hmm. I sat my part three the day the twin towers came down. I was in the office when that happened, so you'll never you'll never forget where you were that day. <laughs> so I was in the office. This TV appeared in the, in the office, and I thought I've been here for two years, and I've never. And seen should TV. that building have come down? I mean, oh, that's question. That question's probably on me to be honest right, with you. Right. Um, should it have came down? I guess the thing I would say is when you, when you actually understand what buildings are, their their components, the materials. And you put these things together. <coughs> yeah. Um, I'm trying to give you an analogy. It's like people say to me, you know, that's a listed building, Kenneth. You know, that that's, that should be protected. And my simple head, I just so actually, I, I, okay, it's beautiful. Yes. And it adds to the, the character, the streetscape and all that stuff. But actually, it's stone, it's windows, it's glass, it's timber, it's slate, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they're all, you know, fallible, susceptible to weathering. You know, susceptible to fire, etc. Macintosh that happened there. You know, at the art school. So, should the twin towers have come down? Well, do engineers really design for for planes hitting twin? Yeah. Towers? I mean, I don't. Yeah. Know. I don't know. It's a, that's a difficult one. You know? <laughs> Obviously, would like so, to have thought no. You know, yeah. Because that would have been a great tragedy averted. But, uh-huh. um, but it did. But it was absolutely shocking. I remember. I think it's one of these that there are various things within your uh, lifetime that specific events and I guess it's becoming more prevalent now because you've got something in your pocket that, that keeps you abreast of absolutely everything yeah. um, and I do remember being called through by uh, one of my partners Barbara Calderwood and, and we were just transfixed she had got it on BBC News it was on the computer and it was just you know it was astonishing yeah astonishing I remember I remember sitting in the well, obviously, it's right, you know, my part three, and actually, one of my colleagues at the time, Johnny, uh, sadly no longer with us, but he was in the office, and the two of us were doing our part three at the same time. And uh, I, at first, I just thought it was a wee plane, mm, you know, like so, a, a, a uh, wing or something yeah, that's hit, hit yeah. the tower, never thought much of it. And then, as I say, the TV appeared, this TV that never seen daylight for two years that suddenly worked, it was, yeah, it was, yeah. it was in the office, and I thought, geez, what's well, a wee bit bigger than a small plane, but. Again, my head was down. I was trying to, I was trying to become an architect. Yeah, you know? yeah. And I think I got home that night about half past ten at night. You know, left the office having finished the first day, and actually turned the TV on, sitting eating my dinner, um, and actually seeing the newsreels. So and thinking, God, yeah, you know, yeah. that's just you know people jumping out of buildings. Oh, and it's mental. It's just 
It was crazy. So you started 2000, so you did your, so that's 2001, mm-hmm. you, I presume you did an element of time served with a practice. I was still with the same practice, yeah, right, so, so sat 2001, right. uh, kept working there for a couple of years, um, there was a bit of um, turmoil in the practice at the time with people leaving, mm-hmm. um, directors going different ways, staff going different ways, um, and... And you added to that then by going your separate way. Well, I did, yeah. I was probably one of the, the last people, though, to, to leave. Right. Uh, it was very upfront and honest with the guys um, because... Well, why did you want to do that? I, as a young person, I always wanted to have my own business. That was a driving... That was a driving driver. I, I don't know where that came from. I, I, I've never been able to trace back why I wanted to be a business person. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did. Um, and... I always just wanted to have my own architectural practice. Little did I know then, um, but that was it. So, in fact, it was two thousand. Talk about computers. Two thousand and four was the first time I actually bought a computer. Right. I had my own computer in the house. Uh huh. So they've been out for you know. I think every house probably had a computer by then. Oh, I don't think we did. No, well, we were a very late adopter. Right. Well, I, I I mean I hate them. I do hate them with a passion. I hate technology like that with a passion. I think it uh-huh. takes up too much of my time. Yeah, yeah. It makes it makes life so much simpler. But yet, we're but it can control your life. Oh, That's a huge yeah, issue. Absolutely. I think for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, I'm a big believer in, in maybe trying to only look at emails three times a day. Mm-hmm. So at the start, the lunchtime, and then at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. But it's very difficult not to get drawn in. And as I've said many a time, the email is not your agenda. Mm-hmm. Somebody sending you an agenda, it's their agenda. Yeah. Uh-huh. So you've really got to be strong and, and make sure. Because ultimately, and I had this for years and years and years as a solicitor, is that you just fed off the email that mm. was your day you yeah. almost didn't plan I, I didn't that's probably one of the, the things that I got wrong was that I never at the start of the day planned my day mm. I do now because yeah. I understand the benefit of doing that because I think if you don't plan your day you can't actually move everything forward mm-hmm. you're just firefighting other people's yeah, issues absolutely yeah the email is a brain dump it's everyone's brain dump all day long. It's the tasks they've got to do. It's the issues they've got. Yeah. It's, the, it's the how can we fix it. And there's almost this, I've got an email, I have to respond. I've had an email, I have to respond. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, mm-hmm. the person who's actually sending that probably isn't expecting. It depends, I guess, as to how you have dealt with their expectations in answering that first email. Yeah. But if you don't, if you answer that first email from them immediately... Then, well, hell mend you. You've you've created mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. and so therefore there will be an expectation yep. that when they send another email to you, they will be annoyed if mm-hmm. it's not responded within five minutes. I think you're right, but I think I also think that in the architecture profession and, and probably other professions as well, it, it's. I mean, I remember years ago, my my boss said to me, "Kenneth, have you got that in writing?" I go, you know, as, as a young architect, why do I need it writing? Because if you don't, somebody at some point can come back and point the finger. Uh-huh. Um, and it's so true, actually. I've found that through the years. That, but email is just, the, you, you know, as a practice or any business, you've got to have your email system sorted. Mm-hmm. How do you find them? How do you file them? How do you recover them? Yeah. Um, and that's before you even think about how quickly you respond to these mm-hmm. things. Because it's, it's so... I mean, I've had that. We've got a great soft software packaging office, and uh, I've had that. Uh, you know, projects can back five, six years. Properties exchanging hands, things wrong with properties, 
and then you know pre you know owners challenging previous owners on stuff and yeah and we've had to go th- trawling through emails to find you know backup for either a client or a person who's purchased it whatever legal issues there are mm-hmm. so you've got to have those systems in place but in terms of the day to day yeah they take up far too much time uh-huh. they take up far too much time and the dreaded CC. I yeah. hate the CC. Yeah, yeah. Why you CC me? I don't. I don't. I don't, I don't care. It's <laughs> another bloody email I've got to delete. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, oh, it does my head in. Does my head in. Yeah. Um, so you start the practice. You've probably had a good run at it. Two thousand four, five, six, seven, and then two thousand and eight. Yeah, that was a dreadful time. And could you see that coming? Did you? No. Nothing. No. 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 As everybody. I was a young, I was a young businessman. I had a young family at the time. Um, You'd have been thirty. I'd been thirty. Yeah, yeah early thirties. Okay. Um, I remember early thirties. I had the business. The business was five years old. Um, I went to, well, business was five years old. I'd taken on my first staff members. Um, was there debt in the in the business? Then no, no, right. no. I mean, okay. I'll be honest with you. When I left the house, when the business was four years old, mm-hmm. taking on my first staff member, moved moved out the the house. I had built up thirty thousand pounds worth of cash in the business. Yeah. I then moved out to an office, take on new more staff, PAs, um, technical staff, etc. So I think we had about a team of five or six at the time. Five years later, when I moved back to the house, long story short, mm-hmm. um, the business had something like thirty thousand pounds worth of debt. Uh-huh. Yeah, and that to me, um, in my mind, well, one could argue maybe I didn't deal with it properly or correctly, or or I should have done something different. But the recession just ate up. You know, wow. architects couldn't get work. The work we could get was very poor fee paying. Then, then so you lost sixty grand. You could say then you had thirty grand set up costs, yeah. and then you you dumped thirty grand in yeah. debt. Yeah, yeah, and probably. Maybe just paid yourself the same amount, or maybe even yeah, less. Yeah, just, just just whatever the business could afford then yeah. to get through. Yeah, yeah. Um, the debt was cleared. I mean, there's, the business is still trading. Uh-huh. Uh, essentially, I, I I had to pay off my last employee. I then did the work of two people for about eighteen months. Tough man. To, oh, it was murder uh-huh. to clear off the debts and all that, and that took us to probably roughly about. Let me think. Must have been two thousand. 2012, 2013, yeah. the time the debts were all paid off. And could you start seeing, I mean, when you talked about this business depression, which I think is a lovely way of describing that, mm. is that you're almost just paddling away, but you're not going anywhere, mm-hmm. and you can't see that you're going anywhere, and then you start to think, do you know what, is this worthwhile? And mm-hmm. I guess to a certain extent, that's what I found in my last role as a solicitor was that you were paddling your panel and you just thought I doesn't if I stop paddling then I'm gonna drown. Yeah. I don't want to drown. Mm-hmm. I'll just keep paddling. Yeah. But I'm not actually going anywhere. I'm just standing still. I think that's exactly where I was. I didn't know how to change it. Uh-huh. Um I didn't know how to change it, but it took me a, a good bit of time to realise that I knew I I I'd take the measures to do that. Um but for me it was just do I want you know? Do I want to grow an architect's practice again? It's the whole thing. Surely there's a better way to make a living and to have a quality of life. Mm-hmm. Um, thinking about time, you know, uh, getting more time in my life to enjoy the kids, to, to spend time with Sandra, 
Um, so was there a light bulb moment? I don't know if there was. A, well, I guess there was a light bulb moment, but that's that's the progressive story, you uh-huh. know. And, and I remember um, I was lying in my bed. This must have been what's two thousand eighteen, so it must have been two thousand and sixteen. Would be back end of two thousand and fifteen. Uh, on the iPhone, you know, Sam was sleeping. You know, light of the iPhone, and I'm googling. You know, become a property developer and all, all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, this will strike a chord with many listeners. I'm well, sure. yeah, you know, it's just that way of, you know, okay, I'm an architect, I've done this. The thing that frustrated me was as an architect, you know, you, you deliver projects. That that was that rut I was in. Mm-hmm. I was delivering projects for um, some experienced property developers, but a lot of them were very inexperienced property developers. Um, and it frustrated the living daylights out of me that, that after the project was delivered by myself and the design team that typically I put together, mm-hmm. um, that they were the ones that ran away with the Range Rover, you know. And I just thought, how, how, how is that, you know? Mm-hmm. But there was a lack of confidence in my head about, about me becoming the developer. Um, so a lack of confidence, why was that? Because you had a lack of knowledge? Well, why did you feel no, that there was a lack of confidence? It, it was because you'd started off a business. Yeah. So surely you must have had some confidence there to say, you know what, is it because you were? it was almost to do that was a step into the unknown and because you didn't know anything about it, you felt, well, I don't feel very confident about doing that. I think, it's, I think it goes back to that thing or that feeling of being professionally depressed. You know, when you go through a recession and you see sixty grand out your bank account and you, you try and get by and you you basically are meeting making ends meet. You know, uh-huh. you've done that for years and yeah, years and yeah, years, yeah. and you're thinking, gosh, you know, you need to be confident about money again. Um, how do you become confident about money? You know, where's your your your, your financial thermostat set at? Because we're, we're talking now about projects that are worth millions of pounds you know mm-hmm. and we're sitting you know historically at the end of the month going gosh we've got a grand left you know in the business account to make sure you know mm-hmm. everything's paid yeah. you go okay so so you're going from one extreme to other extreme in terms of um, the values of money the amount of money you need you know the cash flow issues mm-hmm. um, but the other thing was was just you know where do you find the land where do you find the sites these are actually questions that I knew the answers to, but because in my head I was in a, a, a relatively dark place, you know, yeah. professionally, yeah. Um, I think to myself, mm, I don't know if I can do that. Mm-hmm. And that's why that night on the iPhone, I was kind of Googling, you know, property development and, and what have you. And I came across a, a webpage which was for Progressive Property, which is Mark, uh, uh, Rob Moore and, and Mark Homer. And I filled in the forms and kind of thought nothing of it and, and went to sleep. Um, and then the next day I got, a, you've won a property course. <laughs> you, know? um, you and millions of others. <laughs> uh, and, and, and I was, I was, was I sceptical? I wasn't sceptical, but I just thought, oh, that's great. Where is it? And then it's in Peterborough. And I just thought, I'm not travelling to Peterborough, Peterborough. For, a, for a course, you know. And I kind of thought, no, no, no. And I hung up the phone. Um, and when did you speak to Sandra about this? Or did you just keep this as your dirty little secret? About? About Progressive and, and you on the... I th- it was probably a few days after it, if I mind rightly, because a few days after it in my head I thought, I remember filling in that form and nobody ever phoned me and then I thought, oh no, wait a minute, somebody did phone me, they phoned me about a course in Peterborough, you know, right. and I thought, right, I need to find out where that was. Uh-huh. So a few days later I went back on the phone and I, and I found out and I got, right, okay, 
sorry guys, that was my mistake. I did fill in the form. You caught me on unawares, which uh-huh. I kind of did. Um, and I would like to do the course. Um, but, again, mindset, I thought, I really don't want to come to Peterborough. Um, and they said, well, there's a course coming up in Glasgow soon, which was, if you know, the Misopi, multiple, multiple streams of yeah, yeah. There's a course coming up in Glasgow. Why don't you book yourself one for that and go along? I thought, right, fine, that's what I'll do. Um, and, I then, and then I had the conversation, told Sandra I was going to go to this property course and mm-hmm. see what it takes me. And I went specifically with two things in mind. Uh, one is how do I find the money to do the developments? And two, um, how do I um, find the land? How do I find the developments, you know? Um, and and it was as single-minded as that. It was development. It was buying land mm-hmm. to develop. You weren't interested in, you know, I know that Sandra's doing a service to accommodation. You weren't interested in that. You weren't interested in flipping or... or were you yeah. just that... Focused that it had, it was going to be land because that's where my experience lay. Yeah, that that, that was it for me. Well, certainly, right, okay, it was, it was more development. I wanted to find development. Right. Um, as an architect, though, I understand the complexities of doing what what people talk about commercial to residential conversions. Mm-hmm. You know, um, those can be quite quite onerous in terms of complying with building control regulations and, and what have you, planning. Yeah, acoustics, thermal performances, and all buildings. Um, whereas I prefer, always have preferred a clean, you know, I say clean and virgin site, but you know, a site that's never been touched before. Mm-hmm. Um, there are processes you've got to go through, but for me, that's much more manageable and much more controllable because you're always, in theory, one one step ahead of the game. You know, when you open up an old building and you discover something, you know, raw dampness, asbestos, whatever it is, mm. that can set you back. Mm. Um, and despite the fact that I've got plenty of experience in it, it's just something I didn't want to touch, you know. So yes, I went with. Yeah, I went. I went to the Masopi. For me personally, it was how can I find you know investment? How can I find land? Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing which Sandra will probably quite openly tell you is, is I was looking to try and find another income stream for Sandra, um, or, or at least. You know, dangle hook, get her, get her interested in something to do with property. Yeah. Um, only because we had been involved in a network marketing business, which which is a actually it, was a, it is a great business, but for us it came to to its natural end. Um, and Sandra was looking for something that could get her brain thinking again. Mm-hmm. Um, now Sandra used to do recruitment. I know she's been on your podcast, but Sandra used to do recruitment. So that was basically finding a job, finding a candidate, putting the two together. Mm. That first Masopi, there was something called deal packaging. So you find a deal, you yeah. find an investor, and you put the two together. Uh-huh. Um, and that and that was, I thought, Sandra, you could do that all day long. So she was really enthused about that. She went and did Mark Ianson's course um, down in Peterborough. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I, I, th- I think I paid for that. So she's probably got some money to give me. <laughs> Um, but anyway, so, so Sandra did the course, and within you know two or three months of, of coming back up, she had done two or three deals, mm. and got paid from, was kind of enthused and excited mm. again. It does work. It does work, you yeah, know. Yeah. Um, and you know, you get maybe two and a half, three thousand pounds a deal, you know, brilliant, fantastic. But all of that said, Sandra's thing was kind of to get into some of these houses to see these properties, and you really don't want to get into these houses, you know. There's, there's a guy lying in the corner on his bed, you know, and you're trying to 
buy, buy the property off the landlord kind of thing, you know, because this guy can't be bored getting his bed, you know, and it's a tip. And, you know, uh-huh. so, so she was going into homes and, and viewing homes and thinking, I don't really want to be doing that, you know, and then trying to build up the pipeline that, you know, up till then, Sandra had only seen a few stuff off right move, so she'd never really done the guerrilla market and mm-hmm. building a pipeline or stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was something that didn't interest her. So again, it came to the point of what what can we do with service accommodation? And Paul Smith at the time was, well, still is actually, was, was kind of the, the market leader in terms of service accommodation. Um, and then that tied in with Sandra's. Yeah, because you, you went down that, yeah, that, that route. Tied, yeah, so, and then that was... Because I remember we had a conversation at BNI, um, and again, this was probably about just as I started, and I think you'd been down to Peterborough, and and you talked about getting to speak to the right people and getting a better inner circle, mm-hmm. which I found, because at that time I was on my sort of journey with regards to... Um, you know, listening to podcasts about uh, productivity, about networking, etc. And it was quite interesting because as you were talking about, you know, the, the five people that mm-hmm. you spend the most time with, yeah. um, you know, you need to pick your right five people. Um, that sort of started to bleed into these podcasts that I was listening to. So you came back and I remember you were so enthusiastic about this um, yeah. and I think that that has taken you from that particular point to where you are at the moment in that the architectural side of things is something that you are continuing with but you are wanting to try and get somebody and I know that you've got somebody who's dealing with that side of the business at Block now, which is giving you time then to concentrate on what you really want to do. Mm-hmm. So how talk to us about the time scale then from progressive and the uh, and the time that you were down there with progressive to actually getting your feet wet with your first development. The well after that first Masopi meeting, I signed up the next day for the Progressive VIP program, yeah. which essentially is a twelve-month mentoring program. Um, I did two months of that in Peterborough. Then they announced that we're going to start running that or piloting that in Glasgow, uh, which was under the arms of, of Paul Smith and Nanico. Right. Um, and purely for travel, you know, I just thought, well, let's just kind of makes no sense to me to, to go down to Peterborough if I can do it in Glasgow. Uh-huh. So I then spent, you know, the next 10 months doing it in, uh, in Glasgow. And what did you get from that? I'm always interested to find out mentoring. I know, and I know you've, you're going to be starting doing mentoring. Um, so it'll be interesting just from your perspective, what were the good things and the bad things? So let's talk about the good things, first of all, about the mentoring. The good things in terms of what I got from VIP was was clarification in the terms of my headspace because the two things I went looking for um, well let's just say that after about six months of going through the VIP program mm-hmm. which I loved um, I actually realised Kenneth you know how to find development mm-hmm. you know how to find the money um, and, I, and it was that realisation that I, all, I knew all along how to do it it's just that in my headspace, my mindset was in a darker place. 
Mm-hmm. Um, once I would say that VIP for me, which is the biggest thing I got out of it, being around you know the VIP network, um, not just for the mentors and, and progressive, mm-hmm. but also the delegates who are, who are going through similar journeys or yeah. journeys at different different levels, but you know different development or project types. It was that that whole kind of drew, drew me out myself, and I started to realise kind of you know about this stuff, you know. And did you take the view that you thought? The rest of the delegates here do not have the same expertise and knowledge that I do, and of course I can do that because I'm so much better than them. Did that? Um, well, there's a lot of the delegates there were were better at different in different fields. You know, right. Some okay. people there are by to let. There's some people who were getting involved um, in in service accommodation. Um, you had people there who were really only interested in deal packaging. So when you go to VIP, um, there are different mentors you know, sitting at different tables who all have their own kind of niche, their own speciality. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say from my perspective in terms of trying to, to, to find a mentor who had my level of experience in terms of property development, bearing in mind that, that I had never really done one for myself, but I'd, all, I'd done loads of property development. Well, you had all the component you know, parts, parts, you just parts. didn't know how to bring them all together. Um, so... After about six months at VIP, yeah, I came to realisation that there wasn't a mentor in there who, who had my skills and knowledge, and I actually uh, approached Progressive and said, guys, I, I want to become a mentor for you guys, you know, because I can, I can help your delegates do yeah, this stuff. Yeah, yeah, um, And Progressive were 100% on board with that. However, they did, they did say to me, well, you, you'll need to finish the VIP programme, which was fine. I had no challenge doing that at all. Um but realistically, I found my first development, I would say roughly about that six-month period, you know, when I was going through the, the VIP programme, um, my first development was within about six months six of months that. Yeah. And okay. that was a £5.4 million development. Right. End up. Yeah. Okay, well, we'll come to that. Um, and then the downsides to mentoring. What were, what were the mentoring sides you thought, you know what, that's not so great, or they could do that better, or you know what, that's just a complete waste of time. The downside, I don't know if that. I I never I never seen any negatives for me. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be honest with you because my whole experience of progressive in the VIP program was was hundred percent positive, because I I got involved, I took the actions. Um, I listened to everybody, I contributed to the round table discussions, I was up speaking as well, um, and I just felt that that I got as much out of it and more than what I paid for it kind mm. of thing, you know. There were others though in the room who who I felt sorry for. Not bec- I mean they paid the same money as me, yeah. you know, but I, I at times I thought, why why are you here? you know. And uh, actually, Aniko said something to me, and she said it to Sandra recently as well, is, you know, if you're not asking the right questions at these things, you're not going to get the right answers. And I felt that there was people who were turning up every week who weren't necessarily going there with the mindset of asking the, the right questions. Yeah. You know, and I found that, I, I became a mentor, as you know, with Progressive, uh-huh. and I mentored with them for nearly a year. And I found that with some of the mentees, they would come in, you know, m- month to month, and, and the questions, you'd go, guys, you know, where is your question this month, you know? Mm-hmm. 
know, some people would come in to me with, with two or three projects. You know, bearing in mind, I've got, I think, 35, 40 minutes to chat to me with a one-on-one session. They come in with two or three projects with spreadsheets galore and expect a complete analysis from all three. And the reality is you can do one in 40 minutes, no. you know. So, so it's a, the whole thing is you need to focus in on your 40 minutes on what exactly what is your specific maybe one or two questions but yeah. it's not a complete overhaul of your business you know you, you mentioned there we were talking there about the, the, what you didn't like about mentoring and clearly what you felt is that mentoring and, and I guess because you're mentoring it as well um, you're you didn't see any negatives in that and the reason why I don't think you saw any negatives in that and I don't think you should ever see any negatives in, in mentoring, is that you have an open mindset. Mm. And I think that if everything that you said there um, about uh, you know, going there with an open mindset, going there to learn, um, it, that you have to go into mentoring on the basis that you are a sponge, mm. that you are there to take in as much information and knowledge as possible and to have that open mindset, you will grow. There's, yeah. there's no doubt about that. So I, I certainly think that before you even start talking about how much mentoring is costing, etc., I think that if you go in with the wrong mindset, then you're going to struggle yep. because you're always going to be going on about, well, it's costing me this, what am I getting out of it? That's not mm-hmm. the way to approach it. No. And you wanted to become a mentor. Why did you want to become a mentor with them? At, at the time, I did, well, it was, it was a little that thing of I enjoyed giving back. Uh-huh. You know, um, it's that B&I thing. It's the, yeah, it's the kind of givers gain. I did enjoy giving back. You, you did get paid money from VIP, but you know that it was what well, I generally wasn't a lot of money. No, um, I never did it for the money. Um, it was more about thinking. Well, in Scotland in particular, which was which was where I wanted to focus. Although I, I did mentor in Peterborough as well, um, I really did just feel that they needed somebody. On the men, you know, on the mentor side, who had done and who had got a lot of experience in, in doing development, mm-hmm. um, and, and and through a, a various different types of development, because there was people who tended to specialise. You know, some developers would, or some of the mentors specialised in converting projects to HMOs, which was which was great. You know, but there were other people there who who were looking to convert. You know, listed churches to residential. Who mm-hmm. were looking at you know barn conversions and factory conversions and all of these things and, and they, really need, really, they really needed the support from the, the mentors to to set them on the right journey yeah. or to take them down the right first couple of steps to get going, you know, to deal with the challenges that come along because God, I, I, every day I wake up and <laughs> you go to bed at 6 o'clock at night and everything's fine and you wake up at half past 8 and the email's sitting going, well, how did that challenge happen overnight you were sleeping, you know? <laughs> yes. Um, but, that's, but that is the reality of development, you know? Uh-huh. Um, and, and I guess big business, you know, you, you, these, these problems just find you um, and you've got to be tenacious enough to, to make sure you fix them every day. Um, so you've come out of the city, you're saying there within six months you're doing the mentoring. Um, well, it was actually 12, I had to finish the 12 training. months, yeah. but within six months you said, I think, that you'd mm-hmm. found your first development. Yeah, yeah. So te- if you can, tell us a little bit about how you went about finding that. 
Um, well, what happened was I had, as an architect, I had recently completed, there was a, a site in Fault House which had nine self-built plots. Yeah. And I had actually helped a client who'd approached me to get a building one for, for plot number one that she had bought, it had just been released in the market. Um, and that was fine. So we got the building one. After that kind of maybe four month period or five month period of going through VIP, this was about then. And I remember saying to my, my two now kind of business partners, I've got two GV partners, um, and I said, guys, I said, I'd really love to do this for myself. And the two of us said, so, so would we. Um, I thought, fine, I'm going to see if I can find some sites. So I phoned up a girl called Carla. Carla was the sales agent for those nine plots. And mm-hmm. I says, Carla, I says, have you got anything that, that you know, is up for sale? I says, I'm just looking for two or three or four or something just now to get started. She says, well, why don't you think about Fault House? She says, no, I'm not interested in Fault House. She says, no offence, but your plot prices are too high. She went, no, 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 no. She said, no, the nine. She says, the rest of the site's up for sale. I went, oh really? She says, aha, the rest of the site's up for sale. She says, why don't you come back up, drive along and look at the four plots in the right-hand side, within the development, different street, mm-hmm. the final all. And I went up and the bases were in and all the journeys was in from when Sarkleid Homes, you know, uh, went under. Yeah. So that's probably about 2007, 2008. Mm-hmm. Essentially, the site is what we call a ghost site. Yeah, so it's been started and then, uh, you know, disappeared. Um, now my experience would say because I've been here before that those those bases that were put in were structurally sound mm-hmm. and the drainage was probably okay but it's not too much of an issue to rip the drainage up but for what we were buying the plots at you know with drainage and foundations in we'd, we'd make a, a huge saving mm-hmm. um, so I got my structural engineer to go up have a look at the bases um, we excavated some of the foundations just to make sure those were okay and he was happy to sign them off yeah. So right away I knew, right, we can deal with everything else up there. Mm. Um, and that was us. We made an offer on the four, first four plots up there. Um, we secured them, and that was our first four. Um, and funding-wise, how did you organise the, the funding? How did that all... Um, my business partner at the time had some funds that he could put in place to, right. to get that kick-started. Um, and we also managed to secure some funding from, uh, a kind of, not a high street bank, but a kind of boutique bank. Right, yeah. so external funding. Yeah. So you've got three. So what, what did you all bring to the party? You clearly brought architectural services yeah. um, and a knowledge of getting the thing from start to finish. Yes. Your other GV guy brought the money. Uh-huh. The third GV guy, what, what did building, he... Building experience, so right. as you said. He has developed in the past. The other two guys have developed in the past as well. Um, but, but the third guy brought along... But he's on site every day. Yeah, he's building the things up up on site. Basically. Right. Yeah. Okay. That's what he. Does. And do you think that that is? Do you think you need to have three, or what? What do you think? I mean, to me, that sounds like a great combination. You've got the money guy. You've got the the guy who's going to build the thing, mm-hmm. and then they've got you who's designing and making sure mm-hmm. that all the technicalities are yeah. all tickety boo. I think it's. I think it's probably an. A, a, it's an ideal scenario in a lot of respects. You yeah. know. It, it brings with it um, some interesting <laughs> dilemmas because I've always only ever had to answer to myself. Now all of a sudden you've got you know two JV partners yes. that have views and opinions. Um, both of them are not professional people either. Um, so there's that balancing act between the professionalism of, of being an architect you know, uh-huh. and 
their understanding or or, or sometimes their, their non-understanding of some of the, the processes you've got to go through mm-hmm. to deliver these things. Mm-hmm. Um, some things are missed, caught up, etc, etc. Et I think we're all kind of working now, you know, we, we know each other well, we've worked yes. each other for over two and a half years, we know what, you, what each other's thinking. Yeah. But at the start, it was a huge learning curve, uh-huh. um, just to get to know your new business, JB. Yeah, because you don't know where the bars are. Um, yeah. And that can be quite difficult, I yeah. guess, trying to establish that. That's it. Yeah. So that that was that's been an interesting journey. That's uh-huh. been one of the things. Um, but I would do it again. I would do it again. <laughs> so you've decided then. So you're doing this, and I know that you've got a number of developments. But then you've got this this mentoring thing must have come back, or has that ever gone away? It's never gone away. I've always had. I guess the thing is, is that you know, st- still being kind of involved in the architecture business, I see so many people come along who, and I say this with the greatest respect to them, you know, because I've been working with them for over twenty years, but they'll come in, and they've maybe got you know money left them in a will or something, you know, mm-hmm. two hundred grand, three hundred grand, you know, and they come in, and they portray themselves as a developer, and I've bought this piece of ground or I've bought this building and. Can you give us a fee, Mr. Architect, for doing the drawings? Yeah, okay. Well, then 10 minutes of a conversation with them, if that, maybe even five, mm. I can tell they've never done this before. Right. And I go, gosh, here we go. I'm going to have to not just do the work for them, but hold their hand, yeah. nurse them, uh-huh. and, and, and teach, teach them. them. You know, and it's every single time. Mm-hmm. You know? So when you're dealing with, you know, I don't know, a £500,000 project, maybe two houses or something like that, that's... No developer, client, customers got, and you've got to explain to them every single step of the way. You know, it just becomes becomes a job in itself. Uh-huh. Um, and and did it ever get to you the fact that you were telling the same stuff to different clients, and you knew fine well that they would just go away and use that knowledge for the next project? Did that gripe at all? Not then, no, no. Probably then, or in my younger days, that was just part and parcel of the course, uh-huh. you know. And happy to do it on the prospect that if we gave them a good architecture service, they would come back and give us another commission. But there was never any guarantee. That never that was any the guarantee, case. no. Yeah. And in fairness, a lot of our clients have stuck back yeah. and have come back, uh-huh. so that's probably testimony to the service that they got. Yeah. But it always frustrated me because at the end of the project, you know. You did, you were effectively their mentor. Mm-hmm. You know, they were asking you for financial advice, yeah. marriage advice. I've had that, you know. Honestly, <laughs> honestly I've had marriage I thought advice. that was the only the realm of the solicitor. Oh, unbelievable! <laughs> I mean, the architect with many hats. Um, but the thing that always frustrated me was is that you know we never ever charged for that additional advice. No, and they were always the one that. I use the analogy because I want a Range Rover, but they were always the one that drove away with the Range Rover. Yeah, I thought, I, yeah. I, I, need to, I can do that for myself. I uh-huh. need to do that. And that's what I've done. But back to the mentoring thing is, I, I believe that there's a huge, there is definitely a huge gap in the marketplace because there's people with money who want to make money from property, but they generally, they generally, they think they know how to do it, but they genuinely don't. Uh-huh. It's an absolute minefield out there if you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. You know, um, part of the course which you've been on um, at the very start we talk about you know where do you where do you make the money in the deal and most developers and most property people will tell you it's made up front 
mm. you know, and, and negotiating and securing the yeah, deal. Yeah. And that's absolutely fine. But that's maybe only about five, ten percent of the work. Yeah, and I guess for the other ninety percent, that's where you could potentially lose a lot of the yeah, money. That's where you lose the money. Uh-huh. And that's where you are really relying on your knowledge as a developer or you're relying on the knowledge of your design team or your power team or whatever mm-hmm. guru phase you want to use. And I just feel it's just so important that people who are getting involved in development understand that that 90% is a process. And you need to understand how or what that is. And once you've done it two or three times, then you can sit back and go, right, I know that, and maybe diversify. But until you've done it two or three times, you just don't know the process. Mm-hmm. I've done it for 20 years, and every time I do it, there's something that comes, you go, gosh, I've never seen that coming. Bit of a tweak. We yeah. can fix that. you know, and, and we fix it because we've got 20 years worth of experience and uh-huh. the right people we know who to go to. But when you're starting off, you know, you, you just don't have those skills. Mm. You know, how would you know? Uh, you know, you've appointed your design team, so you've got your architect, your QSs, your engineers, all these guys who are away spending your money how do you as the developer control that process? How do you know the information you're getting back from that team is accurate? So there are all these things that I think the you know young wannabe developers need to understand and need to to go and be educated on. Mm-hmm. And similarly, I've got a lot of um, more experienced developers and more mature developers who don't keep themselves up to date with legislation changes, planning, building control, all that kind of stuff. And when you meet up with them and tell them, with my architects hat on, about why they can't do that anymore, mm-hmm. you know, they just they, they just don't get it. Yeah. And I understand that they don't get it. But again, there's a gap in the marketplace for these people to go and get educated and brought to speak yeah. on. That, that analogy that you make about protecting what you've got at the start of the deal so everybody's saying that the deal is made your money is made by negotiating well at the start but if you don't protect the money then you're just going to hemorrhage it Mm -hmm. and all the good that's done in some respects it may well be yes the market may go forward but you're not in control of the market what you're in control of are the costs and unless you keep a tab on the costs with your assistance Mm -hmm. then that benefit that you've got at the front end is just going to be completely eroded. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you, you've got to have the cost control. Got to have your contingencies in place. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just so much that can happen. I mean, that first site in Fault House that we've been dealing with, we've now went on to secure thirty plots up there, um, and we've done that with options over I think five phases, if I remember correctly. Um, and we only did that because we didn't have the money to take all 30 at the one go mm-hmm. you know? um, but every time we same site same planning department same building control department same services companies we're dealing with every single phase is brought with a different challenge a wow. new challenge and if that was somebody's first site who didn't have experience not that I'm saying they should take a ghost site anyway <laughs> you know but if that was somebody's first experience I doubt very much that they would have survived it. Uh huh. That might be their one and done. Yeah, one and done, and probably bankrupt as well. Yeah. So you're now teaching this. This is what you want to to do. Well, fu- fundamentally, fundamentally, I want to be a property developer. Yes. I want to do more development. Um, in progressive, we 
they talk about 70, 20, 10, so, so what is it that you spend 70% of your time on, 20% of time, 10% of your time? Mm-hmm. And I would say that 70% for me is development and 20% is mentoring and helping other people. So that's something that I am keen and passionate about trying, you know, doing yeah. and, and bringing these developers on so they can understand how to do it in Scotland. Yeah. Because that's the other gap is there's, there's a lot of courses in England and I've done some of them and when you go down the, the legislation and the jargon and the script is different. different. So what you're offering then is a course with a kilt on it um, and tell us a little bit about the course. Yeah, well, it's, it's a two-day course. Um, we run it from the, the boardroom um, in the office, in the, in the architect's office. Yeah. Um, you've obviously done the course. Um, I did it specifically in mind with keeping the numbers small. Um, and I think when we did it, there was maybe eight in the room, wasn't there? There was seven. Seven yeah, in the room. Seven yeah. in the room. Um, maximum eight because we can get eight tables in the boardroom. Mm-hmm. So there's a maximum of eight people. What I've always found... and. It, and I'm a great believer in doing courses, so I'm not I'm not running them down. Um, and I, and I, as, a, as somebody who likes to, to learn, I'll still do courses as well. But every time I go to a course, I can see 40, 50 people in the room. Um, and the training is excellent. And then I wonder, what you know, in terms of the engagement of the delegates, do they really get out of what they're looking for? Yeah, yeah. And I wanted to do something specifically different from that. I wanted to keep it small, six to eight people um so that essentially the people get to know each other over the, 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 the two days mm-hmm. um, and it gives me time to really drill down on some of the questions and queries that they may have and I felt that that worked particularly well the last time so we go through what I call seven steps you know so there's seven steps that I think you need to be aware of when you're doing the developments we also touch a bit on health and safety as a wee kind of bonus section we talk a lot about being professional and understanding the professionals you're working with. And uh, at the, the tail end of the Sunday, we also do a kind of two-hour mastermind. So basically, everyone in the room has an opportunity to come in and spend, say, 15, 20 minutes, depending on the number of delegates, on a specific problem that they've got mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. either the, the, where they're at in, in their processes, their journey, uh, maybe about a development site that they've been... And everybody in the room learns from that. That's the great thing Absolutely, about yeah. it. Hopefully what happens then is... Everybody, well, hopefully everybody gets their question answered. I'm sure they do. Mm-hmm. But also they get to understand other challenges that people have had in their development journey Yeah. and learn from those challenges as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's where I felt the course was different. And as you say, it's got a kilt on it, specifically for Scotland. So yeah. we don't really refer at all to any kind of English planning systems or building control systems because the two are, are mm. there's a lot of similarities, but primarily they're different. You know? yeah. And unless you understand the detail, the details where the money's lost. So if you want to learn how to make the money in Scotland, you need to understand the details yeah. of the planning and the building control. I mean, from my perspective in going along to the to the 2-day course, um, my background is obviously legal 20-25 years. And in fact, I spent um, a great majority of that acting for builders as far as the sales were concerned. So the likes of Persimmon, um, uh, Stuart Milne, uh, O'Brien Properties, these were people that, that we acted for. Um, and so I had some understanding of the planning process, mm. but it was an incredible eye-opener to me 
to see how many other aspects all require to align in order for you to move the the project forward. Mm -hmm. And you can immediately see, because you're instructing so many externals that the money can easily start to hemorrhage about getting that report and this report, and well, you didn't need to get that report, why did you get that report, do you realise that report's costing you that, etc. So it it really was a fantastic course, and one that I think that if you are considering development side of things that you need to have that understanding. I think so, and and it changes depending on what type of development you're involved yeah, with as sure, well. Sure. It all changes. Uh-huh. Um, as part of the course we talk about, for example, you know, doing a simple buy to flip is development. And we recently had a um, in fact, the, the guy was on the course, um, but before that, he was a client of Block Architects, and he did a lot of bike flips. He was he got a contractor in to do um, a refurb for him, which the refurb in, in general it had to go through building control because they were taking down some structural walls and what have you. Mm-hmm. And then, then building control officers asked him for an electrical completion certificate and all electrical works, and he had never been asked for this before. Um, and that was a kind of big eye-opener for them because the reality is if, if you've got someone, you know, you've got the sales secure, so you, so you as a developer are saying, right, my sales going through two weeks on Friday, you know, I'll get the tool out two weeks on the Wednesday. Mm. So you get them out on the Wednesday yes. thinking it's a done deal, box. pick the box, Penalty I'll, kick. I'll get the form from the building tool officer and uh, we'll send that to the solicitor and it's done for Friday. Uh-huh. And then the building officer comes and says, ah, everything's great. Okay, no problem. But, By the way, where's your electrical completion certificate? And then you go, oh, you know. And then the electrician says, oh, I can't get out to next week. So they, you know, and then the knock-on effect is the sales delay and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so yeah. then it's the 90% is, is making sure that you've locked the money in. What steps, what procedures have you got to do to lock the money in? Yeah. And actually, a completion, electrical completion certificate on a small refurb is, a, is, is probably the the least onerous of all examples because when you scale that up to bigger developments mm-hmm. there's so much more so many more plates to be to be juggling and, and managing. But let's take it back. If you're doing a, a refurb on a flat and you've got, I don't know, 20, 30 grand profit in it and you can't get that for another two or three weeks because you literally will completion certificates late. But you need the you need that whole money in the pot because you've you've secured the next flat which yeah. you're exchanging on the following week because mm-hmm. we've been there in that position you just go, oh, well, where's, where's the money coming from that? Because I'm not going to get the sale through the flat because I'm not going to electrical police certificate. So yeah. it's a whole it's a whole process. It's a whole system. It's a whole... And if you're serious about the property development, you need to understand these... these it's bureaucracy, yeah. but you need to understand it. Yeah. So listen, if people are interested in the course, how do they get in touch with you? Various ways to get in contact with me. Um, they can uh, catch me on Facebook if they want to. I guess the best way to do it though is to go to the, the webpage which is all the W's KM Property Mentor.co.uk. We'll get my phone number on there, they can fill in the forms on there, they can do research or find out about uh, what's contained in the course, the dates, the price, etc. etc. 
and all they've got to do is press the button and we'll secure them a place. Brilliant. And it's a two-day course and it's intensive. You yep. know, it, it's there from 9 till 5. It's 9 till 5. Two days, two days over the weekend. 28th and 29th of April. That's the next That's one the you're next doing. One. Okay. Yes, uh, we have some places left. There's there's maximum eight, ideally only six, you know, but yep. a maximum of eight people. Um, so really keen to make sure we get a full six and we'll run the course again. It's very intensive for delegates, but, but training it, yeah. it's, it's very intensive as well. I went home on Sunday night and I literally just put my feet up, had a laugh and thought, gosh, what have I just put myself through? You know? <laughs> it, was, you know, it was exhausting. Good, 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 good. Well, listen, Kenny, thanks very much for, for coming in to see us. Um, I'm really interested to see how the mentoring thing goes. Uh, I'm sure you'll make a huge, huge success. I do think that there is a gap in the market there for those who are needing mentoring in that particular aspect and I've no doubt you know having been on the course that you'll make that a huge success thank you good I agree fully <laughs> <laughs> great um, was there anything I should have asked you or that you wanted me to ask you no I think no, no I think we've kind of covered covered all of that okay. yeah. I guess the only thing is people might be asking you know where are you at now, Kenneth, in terms of development, you know? All right, um, yeah. And uh, so, of course, the Falters site was our first site, mm-hmm. but now, kind of two years, two years, you know, on, Falters were just finishing. Yeah. Um, but as a, as a GV, as an organisation, we've, we've got some, like, £12 million worth of development secured, going through legals, yeah. at, at various stages of the process, you know? So it's been quite a journey. And uh, and that's where that's where we're at. So it's it's good. And clearly enjoying it. I'm enjoying it. Yeah, I think uh, it's what I've always wanted to do. And it's nice to know that there's some serious dough coming down the line as well. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, because it's not it's not trickles. You you know from the solicitor background, you know that. You know, if you're doing an exchange, you know, 400, well, 800 chance, quid, yeah, you know, yeah. it's not, you know, you can survive on it, but uh-huh. you're not going to change your life no. on it. And uh, it, it's nice to know that there's some some serious money coming down the line because yeah. it is hard work. Uh-huh. You know, it's enjoyable for me, but it is hard work. And great to be rewarded with that. I mean, there's so many people out there who work so, so hard but don't get the benefit of doing that, those hard yards. So it, it's... Yeah. You know, that's great to hear that, um, you know, the expectation is that, you know, there'll be some yeah. uh, some money coming well, down the chute. So. I, I, I don't think anybody would do it unless that promise was there. <laughs> <laughs> you know what, I think Kenny tells a great story and it's a story about entrepreneurship. Um, yes, he's got a professional a degree. Yes, he's got a professional job, but ultimately what he always wanted to do was to work for himself. And you can see that everything that he's done and the stuff that he's doing at the moment is always showing and demonstrating that drive just to be an entrepreneur and take action and, and do things the way he wants to do them. I've got no doubt that he's going to make an absolutely huge success as far as the property development side of things is concerned. And he understands the benefit of education. I know that there's so many courses out there that are being hawked left, left, right and centre and some are being left with a, a bad taste in their mouth as far as that's concerned. But 
personally speaking, having been on the course myself, I think that there is absolutely huge value. If that is uh, the kind of thing that you want to 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 learn a little bit more about, what I would be saying to you is do your homework, get an understanding of what's involved. There's no point in shelling out the kind of money that, that Kenny's asking for if you're not going in at it 100%, yeah? You've got to make sure, do your homework. Is this something that you can make work? Go and have a chat to Kenny. Kenny will be open. He'll tell you what the course involves and whether or not it would be a good idea for you to come along and spend your hard-earned on a course that's going over two days. Personally speaking, I thought it was great and uh, I would wholeheartedly recommend you to give Kenny a call or email him and just uh, get yourself on that course again if it's right for you. I said to you at the back end there that I would tell you a little bit more about the Highland Fling. So the Highland Fling that we did on Saturday, 53 mile ultra, starts at Milgai, finishes in Tindrum. Any of you out there who have walked the West Highland Way will know the course. It was split into sort of four sections, four drops, uh, drop zones where you could pick up food and I have to say, it was probably the second hardest thing that I have done. It really, mentally, that last 10 miles uh, was really, really tough. It just got to a stage where you were just putting one foot in front of the other. And it, it not, I mean, physically, yes, it was really, really taxing. But once you get into that stage, uh, the, the back end of the race, it just becomes very much a mental thing to keep going and you know that you're going to finish within the time slots but it's just that mentality that you've got to get to keep running um, it'd be too easy just to walk it out um, and that's where myself and uh, I ran with a guy called Keith Kemsley uh, who I was at school with and uh, we got together around about mile 30 and we, we pushed ourselves I think it's so important these races that when you're in a situation where you're struggling, then the guy who you're running with tends to help you out. So, Keith, hats off to you. I know you did a fantastic effort there. That's only your second long run. You did the Stirling Marathon last year, and then you're on to the Ultra at 53. Gosh, before you know it, you might even be ten, uh, tackling the whole Buna, the full Buna, which is the full 99 miles of the West Highland Way. So it, it's a fantastic race, I have to say. If you get any, if you've done any marathons at all, then I would um, wholeheartedly suggest that you get in touch with the good people at the Highland Fling and uh, and get it. it. Was only seventy five quid, and I tell you, you got an absolute bag load of goodies. You got a t shirt, you got a buff, you got a medal, you got as much ice cream, beer, and food as you could eat at the end of the race. I picked up a hoodie for 15 quid and a bottle of cava was thrown in as well. Just a great, great day. 200 people turn up. 200 people turn up just to support the thing. That's the organisational extent of it. Uh, we had about 800 runners and then there were 200 volunteers who helped out on the day. So listen, kudos, hats off and all that to the organisers. Just a great, great event. Um, it's as I say 13 hours and 12 seconds is what we did it in or 12 minutes is what we did it in and there's significant cutoffs that if you don't reach a particular checkpoint by a particular 
uh, time, then that's it. They take your uh, chip away and you're, you're hauled off the course. And I heard one story where the last checkpoint is at Glass. By that time, you've probably been schlepping it out for about, mm, I don't know, maybe 11, 12 hours. Uh, this woman missed the cutoff by 30 seconds, 3-0, 30 seconds, missed the cutoff and they yanked her from the course. Uh, needless to say, she wasn't very happy and uh, she stormed off in high dudgeon into the Portaloos kicking the doors as, as she went. So uh, maybe she wasn't too much of a happy camper at the end. Um, but rules is rules and, uh, you know, she'll be absolutely livid on the fact that she could have picked up over a period of, of 10, 11 hours. Surely to goodness she could have picked up a 30 second here or there. So, you know what, El Menjum, yeah, those are the rules and uh, they're going to be enforced. The other thing that was uh, interestingly to be enforced was that you had to make sure that you had a working mobile phone and a foil blanket, one of those space type blankets. You've seen them all, no doubt. Um, and there was a point 12 miles in where they did the check. And I heard two stories, one where a guy in fact had forgotten his mobile phone and he ended up running all the way back to Drimmon so that's 12 miles back to Drimmon, picking up his phone and then all the way back. Just complete lunacy, I have to say. And then the second was that a guy had forgotten his, or not packed his uh, space blanket. He, in fact, got two in the car, but he hadn't packed them for whatever reason. He turned up and they were good enough, the organisers were good enough to say, listen, don't worry, here's a space blanket for you. To which he said, that's great. And they said, well, in order for us to give you that, then you're going to have to give us your timing chip. And he wasn't pulled off the course. But in essence, what happened was that uh, he DNF'd. He was allowed to continue running, but they took off his chip and he technically didn't get a finishing time. So, you know, they're quite brutal with regards to that. But I guess that's what they've got to, to be, because I, I guess there'll be insurances that will be at stake here that they will not be able to claim on insurance policies if they haven't followed the rules. So that was my stories on the West Highland Way and the Highland Flynn. Great race. Whether or not I'll do another one, I'm not entirely sure because <coughs> I tell you what, I'm absolutely rooked. <laughs> Utterly rooked. Um, we did it on the Saturday. I'm recording this on the Monday and I think it'll probably take me most of the week just to get back in in decent shape. By the time I'm back in decent shape, you'll be on to the next podcast. Next podcast we've got is John Cox at Cox & Co. He's a former professional rugby player. He lives in Edinburgh. He's done a bit of business with his father up in Aberdeen. Started Cox & Co. And he, there's a really interesting story. And I'm sure one that you'll find is, is great to listen to. I also had been invited out by Ross Harper. Those of you who are in the property side of things will probably know who Ross Harper is. He's the guy who is developing the church in the west end of Glasgow. So you're going up along Byers Road and you go up Great George Street. The Mars of Sparks is on Great George Street and there's a church there um, about halfway up Great George Street and he's developing that. So went in to see that. It is looking spectacular. I think he's made a fantastic job of that and uh, he uh, 
he's keen to come on the podcast. So we'll get to, we'll sit down with him and, and some of these guys who he's working with there and just chew the fat a bit about that. If you want to come on to the show, then listen, shout me out, give me a call. Um, uh, mobile number, you can get that on, on LinkedIn. And if you want to get in touch with me, then the best email is probably a new email. So sharpen your pens, sharpen your pencils rather. And it is Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, Jonathan at bricksandmortarmortgages.co.uk. I've decided to start moving ahead with regards to bricks and mortar and best then that you know that that's the email address. So listen, look me up, shout me, uh, give me an email and let's get you on the show. Jonathan at bricksandmortarmortgages.co.uk. I'm off for a bath and ease my weary, weary limbs and we'll catch you on the other side. You've been listening to the Bricks and Mortar podcast. You know what? It is your property podcast. Give us a shout. Mm-hmm.